Welcome to the Fishbowl, the podcast where I record conversations about business, entrepreneurship, and other valuable topics. Episode 13. This one is with the man, the myth, the legend, Kenny Chen. How are you doing today, Kenny? Hey, Mark. It's uh, it's great to be on the show. Yeah. Uh, thanks for having me. Of course. Of yeah. course. We're sitting here in uh, Kenny's sick apartment on the north <laughs> side. Uh, it was a really cool drive over here. I typically ride my bike in this area because it's so beautiful. Um, isn't, it, isn't it called the Mexican... Four streets, or is that nearby? That's that's very nearby. Okay. This is actually in Allegheny West. It is the smallest of the ninety Pittsburgh neighborhoods. It's like four blocks across. I see. Yeah. I see. Well, nonetheless, a very beautiful area, full of great food, great little parks, and great personalities. One of which, Kenny, we've just talked for the past about hour in the pre-podcast uh, part of this show and man he has quite the story for you guys that involves a lot of different geographical changes and we're going to go through pretty much all those starting at the very beginning so tell me about your early life i come from a proud taiwanese heritage my uh my parents came over from taiwan in the 80s for for school and I was born in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, so I'm a cheesehead at, at heart. Uh, but I was moved out to Las Vegas when I was about one year old, and that's where I spent like the first 18 years of, of my life uh, for the most part. A lot of people ask, "Wow, I've never heard, I've never seen or heard of a person who actually lives in Las Vegas. Like, who actually lives in Las Vegas?" Mm. And um, and you know, there's actually about 2.1 million people out there, and uh, you've got to have employees to fill not just like the casino jobs, but also the hospitals, the schools. There's probably over a hundred schools out there. Um, for all of that, it just was a, a pretty normal lifestyle for me. I mean, you know, you go to school, you play sports, and occasionally, uh, you know, y- you drive by, by the strip and wonder as a seven year old, like, um, what a gentleman's club is and uh, <laughs> how much of a gentleman you need to be to, to go there. She's like, mommy, mommy, what, why isn't she wearing any clothes? I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, so, so that was about it, though. Interesting thing. We were talking about how the Las Vegas culture, uh, even if you're living there metropolitanly, even if you're living there uh, as someone who's not partaking in the tourist aspects of Las Vegas, which it's very well known for, uh, how the culture nonetheless overflows into a kind of so so that suburban type, uh, you know, life that that you were living. And uh, how is that like uh, culture wise for you? Yeah. So um, just about everyone in Vegas lives in some sort of suburb because. Uh, you know, you're not going to actually live on the strip, you know, unless you're living inside a hotel or something, it it just doesn't really make sense. And, um, Vegas is a really sprawling, um, environment. It's flat, you know, people have just built outwards because there's, um, hundreds of square miles of land that people can just continue developing like neighborhoods out of. And so what that means is that outside of, 
a outside of a kind of cookie cutter neighborhood and housing development kind of thing, you're not going to spend a lot of time walking around and seeing people. The the public transportation system uh, for me was pretty much non non-existent growing up. Uh, you just drive everywhere from point A to point B. So there isn't a strong sense of community in, in Vegas. Nothing like what, you know, I, I enjoy here in Pittsburgh. Um, and so there's that element. And then, you know, even though not everyone engages with like the Las Vegas Sin City side of things very often, we all see and feel the influence of the strip clubs, the gambling, the drugs, the, you know, everything there. Those who pay attention and are thoughtful about this end up becoming inoculated against the attractions, um, you know, towards those spaces. Uh, and so for me, like, I'm not really into any of that stuff. I'd much prefer a nice, like, natural body of water and some trees I see which Pittsburgh definitely has yeah so. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing that that's very interesting uh, I was telling Kenny that I used to live in Salt Lake City Utah from ages four to six and we would always go to Las Vegas and we had some great memories at Circus Circus oh yeah just a beautiful spot um, playing some of the games there I know I remember my brother Walked out with a huge lion uh, stuffed animal, which I still have now. But nonetheless, from there, uh, once you graduated high school, you were involved in a ton of different extracurriculars, a ton of different leadership positions in high school, which prepared you uh, to then go to UC Berkeley, uh, your college of choice. Tell me about the, the culture there. That transition was pretty interesting for me uh, going from, I mean, pretty much throughout my childhood, like first 18 years of my life, I was a pretty, no, I was a very awkward, uh, nerdy kid, um, didn't have any social skills, didn't have many friends um, at all. The most friends I had were like in chess club or something. Oh. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, towards the end of high school, throwing myself into like student government situations and just like the gauntlet of engaging with different people um, at every turn. I think that was a really nice kind of on-ramp towards uh, towards college and going to a large school like Berkeley where there's just so many opportunities. And it's like, the well, I mean, with with just about any college and university, the, 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 the world is largely your oyster and like the experience is what you make of it. So I just like went went ham like I took as many classes as I could in as many different departments as I could and just was was so in love with with learning um that I would be up till 3 a.m every night like my freshman year uh reading and annotating Tolstoy Tolstoy while also you know yeah just doing calculus problems and uh and other stuff because I enjoyed it um, so, so it was, it was great. Met some of the best people, best friends of, of my life and many of whom I, I still keep touch with, um, and found a passion in social psychology, which has really influenced the way that I look at the world and respond to all sorts of different influences out there. Very interesting. Wow, till 3 a.m. reading that stuff? I couldn't imagine, man. <laughs> that would put me right to sleep. 
But nonetheless, you're really into learning. Uh, you're taking all sorts of different classes, uh, ranging from Russian literature all the way up to uh, different variable calculus. Crazy, crazy uh, differences between you and I in that. Um, I like to stick to uh, just the the, necess the necessary classes and kind of build my own kind of thing outside of class. Well, yeah, like your own business, which is like freaking awesome. <laughs> I'm glad you think so, Kenny. I'm glad you think so. Nonetheless, from there, you had a couple different interning opportunities uh, because in UC Berkeley, your ambition was to actually one day be the Secretary of Education for the United States. <laughs> Tell me about what happened. Well, okay, so um, so there was this ambition that I had uh, where, you know, around my sophomore and junior year um, at, at Berkeley, I... I there was a bug, you know, in my head. I was I was thinking that I wanted to go work for the federal government, and I was going to build a career around that. And so um, I I did a couple of internships in D.C. Uh, first, working for the uh, Department of Transportation, um, uh, doing aviation analysis, and also touching on like U.S. China visa policy, and um, some interesting stuff that they were doing with. Uh, broadband internet through satellites and, and other stuff, but that's getting too granular. I, I enjoyed the experience, but I think it was enough. I don't know. Two summers was basically enough to convince me that no, I did not want to spend my life in federal government. Just the, the way that um, not just politics with a capital P, but like even the, the small politics within offices and between departments and the, how easy it is for an entire person's life work to evaporate as soon as like the budget for something gets slashed or as soon as an, administ an administration changes and they decide to just like gut an entire you know initiative i just couldn't deal with that kind of you hear a lot about inefficiency and that was one part of it but it's almost like the parts of it that were unreasonable irrational even I, I couldn't just stick around with. <laughs> I could only imagine when you put it that way, a person's whole life work just being executive ordered away or something like that. It's insane. It's yeah. insane. I've never quite thought about it like that. Um, I tend to not think too much about politics myself <laughs> just because I see no impact how I could impact it personally. Um, That's better for your sanity. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I've been told. Um, but nonetheless, the, the dreams of becoming Secretary of Education were placed with quite an interesting journey after graduating UC Berkeley with a degree in... Uh, psychology, with a focus on social, psych social and political psychology. Awesome, awesome. You then went uh, to work for an organization founded by one of the most famous psychologists of all time. Tell me a little bit about that. I, I went to work for the Heroic Imagination Project, started by Dr. Philip Zimbardo uh, from Stanford. Uh, he's most famous for the Stanford Prison Experiment that he conducted back in 1971. Uh, but he did have all sorts of other uh, research that he did um, in uh, in shyness, in uh, looking at the at the origins uh, and you know, roots of human evil and like those kinds of behaviors and stuff. 
And the, the whole point of the organization, the Heroic Imagination Project, was to take those social dynamics that he had so deeply come to understand could influence good people to do bad things and instead explore how social dynamics could be used to make uh, ordinary people do extraordinary, even heroic things on a regular basis. And so I was uh, helping them do research, build curricula for uh, interventions, workshops, you know, consulting practices, all of these kinds of things for everything from schools to multinational corporations, and just advising them on how they can learn from the last hundred years of soci sociology and psychology research to drive better like cultural and behavioral outcomes within their organizations. That's extremely fascinating. Uh, so kind of like, and you could do anything from conferences to consulting, mm -hmm. you know, that's very interesting. In my mind, I kind of picture like a Tony Robbins conference or something, and you're making like little worksheets uh, that people are going through. Is that accurate or? Well, I've, I've never been to a Tony Robbins conference. Um, I've seen the videos of him like really hyping people up and that at the very least is is not not something that that we do um you know if if anything um sometimes it's it it's pretty deep and stark um you know when you're when we're talking about the impacts of so a common example you know one of the one of the workshops that we would do um pretty early on was uh on the bystander effect so this this tendency for people when faced with like emergency situations when that happens in a group there is a tendency for people to stand around and not do anything even while somebody's getting crushed by a car or mm. um, being uh, uh, verbally or physically abused or any of these kinds of things because you know once you feel like you're part of a crowd the burden of of responsibility that a person has feels like it's spread among everyone and you ask yourself why should i put myself at danger and go out of my way to to do something about this when you know there must be somebody who's more qualified there's this this or what that or whatever you know, we can find plenty of non-dangerous situations for for bystander effects. Say, you know, a twenty-person startup where the CEO or COO is conducting abusive practices or, or those kinds of things, but nobody says anything about it because that's yeah. an example. Wow, that's things. very deep. Going back to the root issues, quite like many psychologists do. I like that. I really do. And then after that, uh, with working with this really cool organization, is it was it in its early stages or? Uh, relatively, yeah, going probably a year or two into its development. I see, cool. But they moved you uh, actually over to you know have more of a worldly impact to the other hemisphere of the world. Tell me about that. So about a year into my work at the Heroic Imagination Project, uh, there was this opportunity to take this to Hong Kong. Um, we had uh, a number of 
organizations that were very interested in the message and the content of, of what was being taught. And they needed somebody to be there full time to conduct all these workshops and facilitate those partnerships. Uh, so that ended up being me. And, um, and, and yeah, I, you know, packed my bags and became the, the one man, you know, Asia office for, for the organization and spent a year um, going around between Hong Kong, Guangzhou, um, Hangzhou, and you know, checking out other opportunities in, uh, in like the Philippines and um, other areas as well. And yeah, I'll, I'll just say it was a very, yeah, uh, it, it was a very formative experience for me. There were a lot of good things and a lot of uh, not so pleasant mm. you know, aspects of, of that work. What's the number one thing you learned uh, from being on yourself, by yourself in a different part of the world? Yeah, man, I think, uh, you know, the first two months that the, I was there was among the most depressed that I've ever been. You know, spending, being in a place with, uh, without knowing anyone, without any friends, and trying desperately find a tribe and, you know, people that I could relate and connect with, but only ever encountering investment bankers because they're the only people that can afford to, like, live in the city and, mm. like, go out to I things. See. There would be days on end where I would, I would be trying to work in this windowless apartment that doesn't have a kitchen and the bathroom is essentially like a three foot by three foot stall with a toilet and on top of the toilet is a sink and then on top of the sink is a shower head um wow kind of thing. i was paying fifteen hundred dollars a month for this thing that was the size of like a parking space essentially there was, I guess, a lot that I learned about discipline, tenacity, and but more than anything, like just uh, intentionally putting oneself into like the right channels of finding opportunity and serendipity. So, at the two month mark or so, I just made a commitment that every single day I would find some kind of thing that was going on in the city, some kind of event. And I, I would I would go to that, and I would try to meet and talk to as many of those people as I, you know, as I could, while I was there. And then, bam! Like, even just over the course of like a few weeks, started finding those people that I could really relate to. Started finding genuine friends that didn't want to just like go party every night or or, or whatever. Did um, you find a lot of those? Uh, oh, people who just wanted to party? Yeah. Well, it's more people who just wanted to drink their stress away. I and, see. Um, it's it's really probably the most stressed out city in the world. Mm. Um, you, and mental health there is abysmal. Um, I see. And, and all that stuff. But yeah, found found some folks that I could... Uh, that I could really hang out with. And, you know, that skill set ended up serving me really well. <laughs> that sounds incredible. You really took me on that journey with you. I, I, can't, I feel that because I went to Peru for two and a half months after my senior year of high school. And although I was there with my grandparents and my mother and my sister and my cousins were around the corner, it was still... It was hard not to be depressed after like 
a week, <laughs> right? Because you know, you you really it's you can't do anything. You over at my house, I got my car. I can go do whatever I want. Got my friends. Text away. I got Pittsburgh down the road. I know everything. And when you are there with no resources, especially when you're used to having it, it's 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 incredibly difficult mentally. So what an interesting thing. What ended your time with the Heroic Imagination Project? I'd wanted to be bouncing around between like sectors and parts of the world and learning essentially the languages is the way I think of it, the, the languages, of cultures and everything. So um, I, I don't think I ever intended to stay for, for too long. And at the same time, there was a fellowship program that I really wanted to do called the Coral Fellowship in Public Affairs. And so while I was in Hong Kong, um, I applied for this, wanted to do this program in, in Pittsburgh. It's essentially a nine-month leadership development program that puts its participants, its fellows, through a series of rotations in different placements. And that'll include business, nonprofit, government, et cetera, which just fit my like values and interests really, really well. And so I got into this program and, uh, yeah, summer of 2014, left Hong Kong to, to come to Pittsburgh for a new adventure. Wow. A fresh start. Exactly. In a fresh city. How was, what was your initial perspective of Pittsburgh? Oh man, it was amazing. Even, so even before I got here, I, I still remember I was at Terminal D it, at Los Angeles International Airport to flying to Pittsburgh, you know, for the first time. And then at the gate, like, I don't even remember how it happened, but somebody like started a conversation with me and I said, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm moving to Pittsburgh. It'll be my first time there or something like that. And suddenly like a dozen people around me all like chimed in and you're just like oh my gosh you're going to love it oh welcome to town um you know a family of four was like hey you should go to kennywood another person was like get a primanti sandwich as soon as you get there um <laughs> and you know uh there was there was a the, the person who was talking to me was like this 50 year old pastor who had left pittsburgh like 20 some odd years ago but would go back to see his his parents and uh, he recommended that I go to the Cathedral of Learning, all of that. We ended up sitting next to each other on the plane and talking for the whole five hours of, of that flight. And then when I get to Pittsburgh, uh, his parents, his 80-something-year-old parents come to pick him up. And he's like, hey, actually, would you like a ride into town? And you know what they say about like getting into cars with strangers. But he wasn't even a stranger at this point because you know we'd become such good friends. And so they go out of their way to drop me off at my Airbnb and like the, the, it was like the polar opposite of my experience in Hong Kong. Like I couldn't go from point A to point B without making a new friend. You know, I couldn't ride the bus without like, you know, getting invited to Thanksgiving dinner with somebody's family. Um, and it, it, it was, it was incredible. Um, and I think there's really something special about like the, the community and the culture here. Much agreed. 
it's a beautiful place. You can really strike up a conversation with just about anyone. Mm-hmm. I remember not long ago, I was raising promotion for the crowdfunding campaign, and I was passing out stickers and tea samples at the point, and I went to every single person at the point, and everyone was... No one, sh- no one shooed me. No one shunned me, uh, which was cool. Very, very cool. Yeah, uh, that, that won't happen in New York or in, yeah. <laughs> I, I'd say, I'd yeah. say. So interesting kind of small town feel of personalities that we have here. But you're here in Pittsburgh. You're doing the Coro Fellowship of Public Affairs. What did that teach you? What sort of experiences did you have in that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I went through that program with 11 other cohort members, you know, so there's 12 of us total. And what I realized was that the Coro Pittsburgh model is a bit different from what I had understood for Coro as a whole. It, I didn't end up going through as many rotations as I wanted, but it ended up being a really valuable experience for me regardless uh, so I spent the first half of my fellowship working for a nonprofit called uh, Opital Albert Schweitzer Haiti, which is a nonprofit hospital based in rural Haiti, uh, Deschapelles. I've been there. Yeah, because you work with Haiti friends. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, I've been meaning to talk to you about this because I was like, oh, man, I actually know this organization that, wow. um, that Teamo is 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 you know building the tree nurseries with. And... And so, yeah, smack dab in the middle of, of De Chappelle, you know, they serve a, like, population of, like, 3,000 people over, like, 640 square miles. But it's just this one hospital with, like, 500 people, and, you know, they operate on, like, a $7 million budget a year, which is nuts, because that's, like, not even enough to run a single clinic here in Pittsburgh. Wow. And so... It was this hospital has been around now for like for over 60 years and it's just such an incredible organization that like hardly anybody in Pittsburgh knows about. I was working in their development office uh, here um, but and 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 had a chance to go down and visit the hospital for a few days and talk to the medical staff and everyone there you know, yeah, really incredible. I mean, how how did you get in touch with Haiti friends, and you know what what's the connection and story there? Extremely serendipitous. I met at my very first vendor show. I met a board member for Haiti friends. He was an entrepreneurship professor at Westminster. He, uh, in essence, asked me, "Have you ever thought about planting trees?" And serendipitously, it was at the literally the first month of me trying to sell tea. I was uh, looking for a social cause to attach to it, and, that, and none of them felt right. But when he said that, I immediately thought of buy a tea, plant a tree, and it just felt right. He connected me with the director, uh, Edward. I got in touch with him, and yeah, one thing led to the other, and I went there this past March. It was just a four-and-a-half-day trip. It felt like at least two weeks because Edward's incredible to travel with and it was just an absolute the best trip of my life so far I still can't believe it was just four days it felt like weeks uh, once again but yeah very serendipitous how that happened and uh, very grateful to have this incredible partnership this incredible opportunity And, and as we grow you know the opportunities 
growing, of course, and I can't wait, you know, what sort of opportunities we'll both have, uh, both of our organizations once once we have more resources to give. Yeah, that, that's awesome, man. That's so cool. Can't believe we haven't talked about this yet. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we're chatting about it now because, like, you know, seriously, like, talk about real lasting impact because the de- deforestation situation in, in Haiti has been just, yeah, really disastrous, both ecologically and economically. And so, you know, when I, when I saw the messaging around that on your website, it was just like, yeah, this is something that really has a multiplier effect on, for, for the people of Haiti. And, you know, definitely think it's a very, very good cause for, for you to have chosen. Absolutely. Something really fascinating about this hospital is, so, so this was built by Larry and Gwen Mellon, I think, um, back in 1956, after they had learned about the work that, um, Albert Schweitzer had, had, uh, had been doing in, uh, in Ghana, I think. Um, and yeah, they, they were committed to, you know, building this hospital and, um, offering that kind of access to medical care and, and attention and education and everything. But in the process of building a hospital, I mean, they needed to, um, to have all of these kinds of amenities that would allow a hospital to actually function. And so there ended up being an entire kind of spread of of like microeconomies that built around it. So people who would start like a bread, um, like a bakery, uh, and f- to to feed like you know people who are working or staying at the hospital, and then more restaurants and food businesses and vendors and other folks to the until eventually there's like essentially this uh, a small town and a lot of people who tap into that infrastructure you know and there's not a lot i mean electricity is always in limited supply water like if you live around the has campus you only have access to running water at specific hours of the day and it might be oh six 6 a.m. to 6.45 a.m. is when you would have to do shower and, like, you know, wash your dishes and clothes and all that kind of stuff. But it's it's fascinating, like, what they've been able to do with with those limited resources. It's absolutely incredible. And literally the the Chapelle Tree Nursery is right in front of the hospital, mm-hmm. uh, like a stone's throw away or even less. And... It's just incredible what they've built over there. They built the tree nursery in order to uh, see about getting to the root cause of all these illnesses, which a lot of them are poverty-related illnesses. It's just incredible how they, they've done that. And it's so cool that you went there. Who did you go with? Let's see. I, I went myself. Well, I mean, they, they sent me there under the care of the president, the CEO. His name was Louis. I yeah. don't remember what his what his last name is though. Uh almost four years ago. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I I had uh lunch with Louis oh, one great. of the days. Oh, that's that's fantastic. He's yeah. so cool. Mm-hmm. From Geneva, mm-hmm. uh Switzerland. He speaks all sorts of different types oh, yeah. of French. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an interesting uh interesting thing up there. Um I didn't I, I forgot that he was from Geneva because um I I been going there every year for the past two years for 
for the UN's AI for Good summits and My like gosh. Their, their initiatives there. But we'll 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 get to that at some point. Yeah, hopefully. That's so cool. Wow. So um, um, nonetheless, you were working on that. Oh yeah, and then like the other the rest of my time at Coro, I was working at the City of Pittsburgh in their Department of Innovation and Performance. Um, this was actually a position that I I scoped out like while I was at HAS. Um, looking for my next thing. And I saw that, you know, the city under Mayor Peduto had drafted this open data legislation and was building its open data resource center. And so I reached out and asked, you know, if, if there would be a way for me to help under my time as a fellow at Coro. And it all worked out beautifully and I was working with yeah with Laura Mexel and uh, the folks at the city to to build that initial iteration of what is now called the Western Pennsylvania Regional Data Center a very unique take on not just having a city's open data but combining that with the county with like the surrounding counties and doing so through a partnership with uh, the University of Pittsburgh and, and CMU. So really nice collaborative approach to like data practices in the region. Wow. A little bit over my head, but fascinating. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, Very cool. It's cool how you're into tech, but you're also into that kind of social psychology deal. Uh, very interesting duality to you. What is your favorite part about Pittsburgh? My favorite part is, I mean, there's there's a lot to choose from, whether it's the culture, the the humility, the welcoming kind of nature of, of the area, the history. But um, with where I'm standing now and what I often tell people is that Pittsburgh is probably the best city to to lead what we call like the fourth industrial revolution this this era where the integration of advanced technologies into every facet of our lives there's there's all sorts of risks and opportunities that come with mass automation ai robotics synthetic biology you know a, a world where sensors are literally everywhere like collecting mm -hmm. data about us all the time and i i think the the risks far outweigh like the opportunities at this point but the the world and like you know competition and markets and all of those kinds of things are not it's not set up in a way to incentivize people to prioritize ethics and responsible you know development of these technologies that said i think pittsburgh is a is a city that holds those values you know you have universities that are developing cutting edge um, research and advancements on these fronts but they're also applying that ethical layer to things. CMUAI uh, requires that all of their students, all of their machine learning students, take an ethics course. The you know Department of Computer Science there now has a fifty percent men and women undergraduate student population. You know for for people in computer science, and I think all of that lends to an environment where you know, the front lines of whether or not we're able to leverage technology to, 
to to really you know equitably make the world a better place um, and improve the the quality of life that's going to happen here in coordination with the surrounding regions where even just you know 25 miles away you know let alone like even in the city the effects of the opioid epidemic and um, systemic poverty all of that kind of stuff are is, is coming to bear we're we're really poised to lead on that front see i see quite the analysis uh you <laughs> you, you did there now um for sure, if I've gotten kind of a pulse over the past year going to networking events of kind of like that rising culture of what you were just talking about. Uh, it's a very interesting thing, and it's cool to stand kind of like front row uh, to not not on the stage, right, but standing front row, seeing it happen, which is kind of cool. Now you you work. In a co-working space right now, is that correct? We run a co-working space okay. as part of um, a number of things that we do at Ascender, which is an economic development nonprofit. Very cool. How is that like uh, running a co-working space? What sort of how's it like managing that kind of managing the culture specifically? Yeah, it's 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 a ton of fun and uh, and I love it. Even though that's that's not as much in my responsibilities to take care of. But, you know, Ascender started off as predominantly a startup incubator. It was founded in 2012 um, under the name Thrill Mill and has been you know, doing that ever since, you know, supporting early stage entrepreneurs, both for for-profit and nonprofit startups. And in 2016, we built out this co-working space right next to Bakery Square. It's 11,000 square feet, and uh, we currently have about 150 members across about 50 to 55 companies. And they're completely organically, this really vibrant, like diverse community has, has emerged where you have people from from like the fast growing uh, AI startups or AI robotics, you know, other kinds of things. You have traditional businesses, people, uh, a good number of nonprofits, but then also like a wide range of service providers from like PR, marketing, social media, insurance, you know, finance, like you name it. And it's like, Anyone there can find anything that they would need in mm. the city through the collective networks of, of people there. And even if they you know, can't find it through a fellow like co-working tenant, that's what our team exists for. Like we're practically like business concierges. Our team collectively pretty much knows all of the institutions at the very least in, in the city and where those access points are. Yeah, we can really lower the, the friction and barriers to entry for, for people on that front. That's um, so cool, man. When you put it that way, I think it's interesting, like, if you were to try doing something like that, especially that was just founded in 2012, say, in New York, you wouldn't be able to say that. But since Pittsburgh, as you mentioned, is only 40 square miles, is that correct? I'm honestly not sure. I, I, would, I would like to check that out. <laughs> <laughs> just really cool. Just a fascinating thing, uh, you know, what you were talking about, Ascender. Really, whenever you think about entrepreneurship in Pittsburgh, you think about Ascender as one of the leading forces. So 
you are currently on a team of just six. How how is are those dynamics? Well, what sort of personalities and also what sort of roles? There's a lot of you guys kind of work on. So how do you guys work together? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, and uh, I I love working on small teams. Um, and you know when I joined the organization, there were four of us, and so we've brought on two people since then. So the functions of a sender uh, are split up across about five domains. Uh, we have the incubator, the co-working space, the range of programs that we host uh, year-round, our big flagship Thrival Festival that happens once a year, and then this split of innovation and uh, community engagement activities that, that I manage. And so each one of these are kind of spearheaded by a, an individual with a pretty high degree of autonomy to decide how programs and how co-working and all of that stuff goes. People are able to ask for help and, and support you know, in, in the ways that they need. But yeah, really, it's a, it's a pretty lean and efficient kind of way for, for people to just be trusted to do like the best that they think is required for area. And so for me, my, my title is innovation director and it's kind of like a build your own adventure mm. uh, <laughs> thing for me where <laughs> I spend a lot of my time scoping out strategic partnerships and opportunities where a sender can add value to any number of uh institutions and organizations either around Pittsburgh or increasingly on a national and international front. So my interest has been to leverage a sender as a way to better position Pittsburgh for all the great strengths that the region has, especially on the front of like AI, robotics, um, advanced manufacturing, life sciences, etc. Make sure that that's, you know, communicated to people outside of the region and spend the time fostering those strategic connections to bring that talent and capital and attention here here to the region. So yeah, it's it's fun. Wow. <laughs> now we're going to be wrapping up here, but what, just one more question for you. Uh, I always like to ask this at the end of everyone's interview. What is your favorite quote and why? That 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 is a great question because I don't know if if I if I do carry uh, a quote with me. I, I had my own mantra that I would say like Sweet. starting from I think middle school, which was pretty much ask nothing, offer everything. But I don't think that's actually like a very healthy, <laughs> uh, you know, perspective to take. And especially when you're an entrepreneur, like, or what I found is that, you know, there's a lot of power and necessity in being able to ask like the right questions and to ask for help when you need it. So I don't think I have a good answer for you, but good I'll, point. yeah, if I, if I think of one, I'll definitely let you know. That's some really great insight. Nonetheless. <laughs> oh, thank you. Kenny Chen, lucky number 13 podcast. Really appreciate your time.
Yeah, thanks. And well, so, I mean, this year's Thrival Festival on September 19th through the 21st, I mean, we're bringing a bunch of really awesome, like more than 70 speakers from around the world, um, experts on a lot of the things that I was talking about earlier today, AI, robotics, the future of work, um, synthetic biology, all these kinds of things. And so even if people don't have a chance to go, I just think that a lot of those topics that we're folding into this are going to be among the most important things that people wrap their heads around going into the next decade. You know, the, the 2020s will be a make or break decade for, for us and people would be well served to, to get ahead of that curve and understand how that's going to affect them, their, their business and the people that they care about. Great point. Sweet. Well, thank you so much, Kenny. And uh, that was it for this episode of The Fishbowl.